1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bob Gross. It's March 28th, 2023. We're at Cooper Mountain Vineyards. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, My pleasure. First question to get you started is why wine?
2: Why wine? Uh, of course, as you know, I have other interests. Mm-hmm. So uh, it all kind of is it's kind of how did it really start? Um, when I was it was really the real first wine tasting I did when, when I was about ten, uh, my grandmother, uh, ha, who was born in Hungary, oh, introduced me to Tokai Aju, which is a Hungarian wine, and um, and you know I was in college or after that and. Uh, And and I I was young at the time, but then I off at the college and uh, always was thinking about tokai as you. Uh, Then I went ahead and uh, went to Georgia Tech and where I majored in uh, biological engineering because I was gonna be pre-med. And that was the only kind of way, the only pathway at Georgia Tech. And I was at Georgia Tech because I lived in Atlanta, and it was a, a great school where I could live at home and go to school and get a degree <coughs> without costing too much money. But in, in the biology department, which was part of the, the degree, obviously, bioengineering, uh, there was a fermentations course. And a guy named Dr. Peter Gaffney was teaching it and he was take, taking us through all the different ferment, fermentations like cheese and wine. Of course, Atlanta was pretty dry back then. So we weren't really allowed to, to, uh, to taste what we were making. But that was really kind of my introduction to wine, <clears throat> understanding that it was a, a, a very biochemical process and that, uh, that we were prepared if, as a bioengineer uh, to go in that direction if we so desired, but of course that the desire then for me Was to go to medical school and in medical school There was even more biology and even more biochemistry So after go after graduating from medical school and doing an internship uh, and a residency in Connecticut the military placed me for a couple of years uh, as a doctor in a place called Mountain Home, Idaho. And that was really the first time I had gone over the Rocky Mountains. And uh, at Mountain Home, we were fortunate enough to kind of see some of the beginning of the Idaho wine industry. And vineyards were growing and people were starting. And uh, some of us from the Air Force Base, Got interested in, uh, in in the grapes, and founded a, a little thing informally called the Merry Winemakers of Mountain Home. And at one point, I was president. But you know, and that was all the grapes were really. Some of them were made from the, from Idaho, but most of them were imported from California in the form of juice. But that again got me introduced to making and drinking wine, and. So after leaving there, I ended up in Seattle at the University of Washington. And there was a group of doctors there that were, had been making wine in the uh, Pike Street Market, about 10 people. And they invited me to be a part of it, uh, because I, was, I just happened to be there at the time and showed an interest. <laughs> so that was a real that was a real first time that I was making a lot of wine because there were nine or ten of us about and we would make you know uh, several hundred cases for all of us but it got to be big enough to where you know the, the general principles of making wine uh, in a little bit more than your home was needed so so the. Uh, the process and, and how to go about doing it was we, we refined it mm-hmm. <clears throat> the the kind of the, one of the founding guys was a guy named Hans Dohr, dr. Dohr, and he would he was uh, a European and so he knew he knew a lot about wine as a matter of fact he went ahead after uh, they kicked us out of the Pike street market to to, to form something called French Creek wineries in Woodenville, which was in existence for a short while. But meanwhile, my wife and I, Kareen, because I got married in this interim, uh, who was from Portland, decided we were gonna move down here to Portland because her family was here, and also because I, I, I had an interest in Pinot Noir grapes. And the group up in Washington was all about Cabernet grapes, and so I, I had heard about Dick Erath and what he had done, and David Lett. So it just so happens that the, a piece of property was for sale through kind of my my uh, my wife's uh, godfather. Uh, which is now Cooper Mountain Vineyards, in in the area of Beaverton and Aloha. It was up for sale. He was selling it, and it was gonna be a development. But when he found out that we were interested, because possibly interested, we came down here, looked at it, and here it is on a southwestern slope, and it was, it was perfect. So this is a place where my wife had ridden horses when she was young, and it just, we got back to that and so she knew you know she this was kind of a part of her way back when she was 10 years old 12 years old so we ended up purchasing it and with the idea of growing grapes on it and uh, of course then the question is where are you going to get the grapes from well I, you just call Mr. Erath <laughs> and Dick Erath at the time and and he'll uh He'll kind of get you started. So that's what I did. And he uh, sold us a bunch of grape cuttings, told us where to put them, how to start everything. And that, that's how it all started.
1: What year was that that you purchased
2: this? About 1978. I'm going to come back to all of that,
1: but I want to talk about uh, the other uh, the other part of your life. We kind of fast forwarded through there. so. Um, Tell me why medical school, and what was what
2: was what did you, what was your what did you determine to be your specialty in medical school? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, I was always interested in in physiology and the way the human body operated, and also the mind, and how the mind influenced the body. So, uh, during my medical school career. Um, i mean i was exposed to a lot of people from obstetrics and gynecology and the hormones and uh, the the uh, physiology associated with reproduction <clears throat> so i ended up doing um, some training in obstetrics and gynecology and that's how i got into uh, that's 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 what i was doing in the military i was the chief of obg at mountain home air force base so but my real interest always had been in what was called psychosomatics. That was the influence of the mind on the body. So, after practicing OBGYN a couple years in Seattle, I decided that I would like to learn more and specialize in, in that part of OBGYN. And so I went over to the uh, medical school, University of Washington, and they kind of put me in the direction of the psychiatry department, since it was mind-body that I was interested in, and also the OBGYN department, and they said, sure, you you could come here and and do some studying, uh, actually do some residency for a couple of years, and if that's what you're going to get out of it to do, to be a specialist in psychological aspects of women's diseases and after being there two years, it was only going to be another year before I became a certified psychiatrist, so I just stayed on. And then they asked me to join the uh, psychiatry department and the OBGYM department at the University of Washington where I taught for a couple of years and did some research. but it was it was really the idea of coming down to portland uh joining Korean's family and the pull of the grapes <laughs> that brought me down here but also i mean psychiatry was easy uh I mean, there was there are a lot of spots here and so i joined the va uh, and did some uh, and the department did some consulting in the department of psychiatry here and then also set up a private practice now it all kind of fell together because the other problem was it became obvious to me if i was going to do anything with grapes and wine i couldn't be an obstetrician it just was not practical but i could be a psychiatrist because you have so much control of of your time and you can you can the idea is, is that you really do can adjust it how you want. I could harvest, I could take that time off, but you can't do that with OBGYN. <laughs> so you don't, you don't say. So I kind of veered in that direction for that reason, and also, uh, so that, that's why we came down here to practice psychiatry and to open uh, a vineyard and a winery. So we we planted the grapes with the help of local people. Um, as I said, I, I, being a, a bioengineer of high biology from Georgia Tech, I could pick up the textbooks on wine and wine making, most of which came from the University of California, Davis. And I could understand it, because I had the background for it. And my wife had the background for growing things. So I could make the wine and she, could, she loved putting in the plants. Mm-hmm. And so we were a good combination. So we planted the grapes and after about three or four years, some grapes came out and we started making some wine uh, in the garage of the house I live in right now. And we did that for a few years until all of a sudden we had a lot of grapes (laughs) and we were up to about 15 acres and uh, it became apparent that this wasn't going to be just a a hobby you know that that there were a lot of grapes there Mm -hmm. so we started selling grapes we sold some to Ponzi we sold some to um, El Cove the the Campbell's Uh, and, and Somehow Myron Redford was associated with it all, and he sold us some great plants as well. And so we were off. And uh, and, it, and then we ended up planting this whole thing of about 25 acres, and uh, hired Rich Cushman as a consultant. Uh, Rich has helped a lot of people get started in winery. And of course he still has has a winery of his own. But he did a lot of consultation and so he helped us buy the bigger equipment. And so we started making the wine in the garage and eventually outgrew it and ended up making wine in this building right here, which was a horse stable. And then we outgrew that and then we built other buildings over here. Now, one of the problems is that it turned out that this area that we bought this farm in is so close to Aloha and Beaverton that it was influenced a lot by the the zoning of uh, the the county, which saw this as long-term development, not as far. Yet across the street is where the farm began. The EFU land started across the street and goes for miles and miles and miles, but we were on the other side. So we were handicapped from the very beginning with how much we could do here, and we still are. And so when we we then ended up buying another piece of property, East of here, uh, which we call Meadowlark, and uh, which was about 40 acres of grapes, which then turned out, since it was a closer to the to the to the city, to and ended up being annexed into the city of Beaverton. And it became apparent that we couldn't, uh, we just couldn't continue to farm it with, with. Uh, that many people around. So we knew that that was going to be, eventually it was going to, it, was, it just couldn't be. But we did buy it in 1985 or 84 or something like that, and, and we just recently sold it. So we had 40 years out of it. And then we bought another piece of property on Farmington Road further down. Another 40 acres, and then we ended up buying another 40 acres uh, in Cornelius area. And we and we we started just increase increasing the size of everything. Of course, somewhere along the way we had we outgrew Rich Cushman, and interim wise we had um, Fuller, Bill Fuller. Yep, there's he sold his place and he was with us for a couple of years. John Eliasson was with us a couple of years, but eventually Sheil found us. And so he ended up being our winemaker and he's been that way for 15 to 20 years. He came from Bridgeview. I'll give you another question now.
1: Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, before we get in, I'm, I'm curious about, you talked about the, the growth of this place, and I'm curious about that, but I'm, I'm also curious about your initial impressions of Oregon's wine industry when you moved here and your interactions with some of the founders of the industry. What, what did you think of the people who were making wine here at that point?
2: Well, it was a, you know, I didn't even think of it as an industry. <laughs> I mean, I, there were only about I don't know, actually 20 or 30 vineyards and wineries in the whole, or all of Oregon. So I I just, it really didn't occur to us that it was an industry. Uh, Because there were a bunch of individuals and it's not like we met, you know, to consult with each other all at once in one place. I mean, gradually over the years that would happen with the Oregon Winer Association and the Oregon Wine Board. But that didn't start that way. I mean, it was really, you would just go over there. I'd go talk to Dick. And then, of course, the other Dick Ponzi was right down the street and would consult with them informally. But it it was apparent. We couldn't sell all the wine ourselves. So we, Found out there were things called wine wholesalers in Oregon, and so uh, we we ended up starting with which I'm trying to remember. We, we we've had a lot a string of wholesalers over time. Um, one one of which was uh, Valley Wine, which was owned by Gallo, and then southern i mean they just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so that that kind of became the industry you know we didn't understand that part of the industry because everything we were selling was just right out of here we didn't we didn't know that much about how you, how you go about selling wine in stores but We did, we connected up with wholesalers and they taught us that and then we realized we had more grapes than even here, went up to Washington and expanded that way.
1: So as you were meeting, especially with with Dick Erath and getting getting cuttings from him, um, what did you start to learn about growing grapes specifically or about starting a vineyard specifically that maybe you didn't expect?
2: well, I guess, uh, I guess I didn't expect the, the, um, the lack of certitude, you know, that, that I think <clears throat> it certainly didn't occur to us to really understand terroir very much. It, it, never, it, would occur. it never occurred, I, I mean, soil was soil in our minds. Uh, because I was, I, and i didn 't I never had had any farming training, but to me I mean, you know just it it wasn 't that big a deal mm-hmm. and of course, as time went on, we understood that soil was most important, and the sense of place was most important and altitude was important and all the different drainage issues I mean, it, it became it became apparent that each site that we had bought was quite different. The soils were different. The drainage was different. Uh, the particular clones, which we discovered, of, of, of Pinot War particularly, uh, were all different and suited maybe for one place or, uh, over another place, and including Chardonnay. Was that. So it, be- it be- obviously became more complicated. As we as we expanded, we had understood the differences.
1: Mm-hmm. So you you started off planting organically from the beginning. Tell
2: tell me about how that came to be. I, I wouldn't say we started out okay. or, or, organic. No, uh, we were just regular farmers.
1: Okay. So what what caused the what caused the change?
2: Um, I think a gradual awareness of the damage uh, environmentally and uh, health-wise that uh, that chemicals that were being used in the industry could have to um, just just about everything. Uh, One of the things that I remember in about somewhere in, uh, in the mid-'80s was uh, using a chemical called Measurol, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a doctor. I use medications. Uh, I'm not against medications. Uh, but uh, I, I wasn't really aware. I mean, I guess I was aware of, of some of the side effects of medications. But that never really translated into into farming, the farming part of me. But what I gave this this measure all was a wonderful chemical sold to us as a wonderful chemical that would keep the birds away from the the grapes. And uh, you you sprayed it on and the birds got sick. They vomited, and then they they told every all the other birds that this is not this is not anything that we want to eat. And so we, I think we all thought it was just a, a a godsend having this chemical there because before that we had to use noise and everything we could to keep the birds off at harvest. But when when the birds went in, you just would just watch them fly in, and they would look they would act sick and only one or two of them would do that and then all the rest of them would fire away so we were really really pleased with that until uh canada decided that there may be something toxic about this and uh it turns out that even though it was advertised as kind of disappearing when you harvest the grapes, it, it didn't. It went into the grapes. As a matter of fact, it's been shown to cause Parkinson's disease and a lot of other diseases. This is a neurotoxin. And it, Canada was smart enough to actually look in the wine and there was residual there. And so it was taken off the market. But. I mean, that was pretty scary because that was very direct evidence of what we were putting in the grapes. We were told it was safe, but it turned out not to be safe. And so I think with that awareness and just a general doctor's awareness, I became very, very suspicious of of what chemicals in the vineyard can do Mm -hmm. to the wine and what people drink and also the workers because they were spraying the chemicals. Originally, I was one of the people that was spraying the chemicals. And there was one called Paraquat that turned out to be, I mean, a real poison. And it's still, I think, I think it's still being used. Uh, but there were a lot of chemicals that way. And so my wife and I were really not happy with having to use chemicals. And so we, we narrowed it down and narrowed it down as much as we could. And then, of course, we were more. We became familiar with the org- organic movement, and so, in around 1990 something, we started uh, trying to make the switch to organic. <clears throat> and I mean, of course, there were other other people doing it, and it, so we knew it was possible. So the approach. My approach was more than just being interested in the the lack of chemicals, uh, in in terms of minimizing the amount of chemicals, because at the same time, my wife was very ill with cancer in in the mid-90s, and I was watching her being treated with chemotherapy, and it occurred to me that chemotherapy was a lot like some of the chemicals that we were using on, on the grapes that basically the philosophy was the same. It was you use a silver bullet to kill the cancer or to kill the bacteria or the molds or anything in, in, uh, that went on the grapes, that botrytis and so on, fungi. <clears throat> but the, the approach was to use a silver bullet to kill it. And then I got exposed through my medicine and acupuncture uh, into alternative medicine and homeopathy. And the whole idea of alternative agriculture came to me at the same time. And that may, maybe other people were thinking the same way, but alternative agriculture became an interest to me. And then I learned about Rudolf Steiner and biodynamics and was fortunate, again in the mid-1990s, to, to be exposed to uh, Alan York, <coughs> who was from California and had started with uh, Fetzer and Benzinger, and sh- showing them how to how to uh, use the philosophy of anthropo- anthroposophy, which is biodynamics, uh, in with grapes. And so Allen, it turned out, had been hired by Mr. Benzinger, because, who was trying to start a vineyard here, right off of Sheila Mountain, uh, and. So uh, somehow, Alan and I got contact- contacted each other, and so Alan was able to start us on the path to biodynamics b- because his benefactor was really mr b- Mr. Benzinger, who was pretty established uh, and uh, had a lot of resources so Alan came here and uh, he was was he's very energetic and very idealistic Californian and so our first consultation was very eye-opening to me because Alan said uh, okay he came over here uh, and said let's go look at the plants and he said uh, you have a shovel I said, well, what do we need a shovel for? He said, well, that's where we're gonna dig in and see what's in the soil. I said, well, that's a kind of a novel idea (laughs) because before that, over the years, we'd had consultants from Davis, University of California, Davis, who came to Oregon and they never even looked at below their feet. They're always looking at the top part of the plant. Alan wasn't interested in that. He was interested in the soil and in the roots. So he starts going through the vineyard, digging, and said, you don't have any earthworms here. I said, well, that hadn't occurred to me. He said, your soils have been killed by all the chemicals that you've sprayed on. And I, I just was devastated. I had no idea that this was killing the, the anything in the soil. So. We obviously made a big switch and started paying attention to what was in the soil and started using the uh, the approach of Rudolf Steiner in biodynamics, putting compost in and then putting homeopathic quantities of uh, of different things like dandelions and so on, yarrow root on the plants, uh, which with my, with my medical thinking, which had been exposed to homeopathy by Hahnemann, it turned out that Hahnemann influenced Steiner into doing the same type of things, spraying infinitesimally small amounts of, of uh, natural substances to act as catalysts to help the, the, uh, the plants grow. What was that transition
1: process like once you, once you start down the biodynamic path, how long did it take you to, to get your vineyard to where you were happy with it?
2: Well, it, it takes, you know, it takes three years for certification. And I would say, you know, that first year or two, particularly the plants are really pretty shocked because again, what we're trying to do with biodynamics is have the plant be a strong be stronger to where it can fight off natural diseases by itself the idea of wellness in plants to make them a, a stronger host and so we immediately i mean when you first do it the very first year it's kind of like the plants are feeling very vulnerable I mean, everything that had protected them before is gone. It's kind of like they, you know, like they had a shield around them and then the shield had to drop and they had to learn how to fight things off themselves. And so first year or two particularly, I mean, a lot of diseases occurred, but amazingly enough, they began learning how to fight off the diseases. And so the amount of chemicals would, that were needed were way less than before, and we use different chemicals. It's not. I mean, <clears throat> organics is not lack of chemicals; it's lack of non-man-made chemicals. But as we know, cyanide can kill, and it's a it's a, a natural occurring substance. So you have to you can't just use any chemicals. But it's amazing that it, that <clears throat> that the grape, plants really don't need that many chemicals, uh, organic chemicals, to keep them healthy.
1: What did you notice about the vineyard as it, as it became, as it got, got into biodynamic status, and as it, as it grew and aged, how has it
2: changed? Well, the magic word was balance. Things were, were, you know, he didn't realize how out of balance they were in terms of looking at the grapes and looking at the shoots and looking at the leaves and the soils. Things became into balance. And and of course, um, the grape, the flavors were changing in the grapes, because, you uh, the goal was not really just to be making more and more grapes which was i think originally all of our goals originally it was now to focus on quality and the uh the grapes yields went down not a huge amount but they did go down to start with and then they came back but the flavors were much more in balance And again, I think it was because they were more able to adjust to the different soils for themselves rather than having man help them out.
1: So you talked earlier about about, uh, finding Gilles as your winemaker. Uh, Tell me about the process of of bringing him on board and and what he has brought uh, to your team.
2: Well, I guess Gilles, you know, Gilles had been a pretty traditional winemaker down at Bridgeview, but, but he was very attracted to coming up here because he knew that's not what he was going to do up here. And it, it turned out again, I mean, it, you know, over the years I have taken trips to France and to South America, uh, and they, they were, as usual, ahead of us. I mean, there were a lot of places that had become organic uh, and a lot of places that had become biodynamic ahead of us. And Gilles was quite, quite aware of that. So he was totally on board to, to working on that. Mm-hmm. The other thing about Gilles that's different than the American winemakers is that he's what's called a vigneron, which is, he, he does, they, they don't believe in the term winemaker because wine is made in the fields and made in the grapes. and so. He, uh, he really uh, was quite different than, than the other winemakers that we have been associated with because he, he was really looking at the plants, mostly. And so when we went organic and biodynamic, he was 100% on board. And I'm not sure we could have done it without his help.
1: So you talked about the, the growth of the business, uh, obviously buying more vineyards and, and expanding. Uh, tell me what you've looked for uh, in new vineyard sites, why you've chosen the places you have, and how they've sort of added to what you've
2: wanted to do with the business. Well, that the advantage I mean, the ones here in Washington County, all of are the vineyards here. We planted all of them, and and so it was it's kind of like uh, a big mystery you don't know really what's going to come out. Uh, you, you try to get you know we got more sophisticated in terms of soil analysis and and uh, having consultation about what grapes would grow where and so on, but you really never know and one of the reasons you never know is that like we would buy forty acres. Uh, it turns out maybe two acres would grow great grapes, and maybe ten acres would be just average, uh, and you never would know until it's been four or five years. But we 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 there weren't it wasn't anything to buy, and so that's what we pioneered basically that. But then after several years and now our recent expansion into. Um, Yamhill County we bought things that were already growing <laughs> and we could taste the grapes uh, for in the wine. I mean all of them, all the vineyards that we bought uh, including Dick Erat's vineyard um, have have a, a track record now. Back then there was no track record but now we're, we look so now we're looking for track records. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to do that So buy buy vineyards that are available, which of course is still pretty rare, uh, and try to get the ones that would fit into what we're looking for.
1: And what is that? What are you looking for?
2: Well, we're looking for that balanced flavor that it's hard to describe because uh, there's no one Pinot Noir. There's no one Pinot Noir style. There's no... One type of Pinot Noir, and we have a bunch of different type of clones. Some of them are very elegant. Some of them have a lot of backbone, and some of them can age a long time. Some of them can't, and so it's has kind got of an individual style that we're we've been interested in. That's hard to describe, but it, I would say it's more uh, old world rather than new world. And of course, Geo has influenced on that on, on that, but you can't. You have to find the grapes that fit. You can't fit the grapes onto, onto that, onto the soil. You have to find them, the perfect spot for them.
1: Tell me about balancing the various businesses for yourself. You obviously, you had your own practice. You have this business. How do you, how have you balanced this uh, as both have grown up?
2: Well, I've balanced it with a lot of help. That's what I've learned. I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud in terms of asking for help. And so I've tried to find the best consultants, the best people, not just consultants, but people that are, that have good character and are reliable and responsible and, and are passionate about what they do.
1: Um, Obviously, we met your daughter earlier who's come into the business. Tell me about her
2: entrance into the business. You know, they were raised right here on on, on the farm and the vineyard and Barbara uh, really took a real early interest in it. uh, And started working in it in some form or another probably in high school or early college and so over the last Twenty-something years, she's continued to to learn more and more about the business, and now uh, she was very active in the in the uh, Willamette Valley uh, Association, Mm -hmm. and also in the Pinot Noir Camp, and so she's she's just grown with the industry, to be honest with you, because you know, twenty years is the industry really isn't that old.
1: Were you excited when she got excited about the industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was wonderful to have somebody in the family to think that that they're gonna carry on w- with it. I mean, uh, it, I, it's rarer than we think. So I'm, I'm curious,
1: I wanna go back, I'm gonna kinda of go out of, out of sequence here for a second. I, I wanna back up to um, you started making wine Washington you found your way down here tell me about how i guess how did did you did you think it would work did you always did you always think that you'd be able to make wine successfully was it was it like once once it became part of your plan did you
2: did you know it was going to work well i was you know as i said i i feel like i'm a second generation pioneer not a first one and the f- the first generation showed us that it could work, and that there could be a business. And you know David Lett's uh, appearance in uh, 1975 in in France. Uh, I mean, I sh- we were we were pretty assured that it could work. Uh, but again, since I was always my income was really mostly from being a doctor, I was. Uh, I think I only gradually decided that financially, that there was some stability also coming from the wine business.
1: And what was interesting to you about Pinot Noir when you first when you uh, when you first wanted to make it here? Why Pinot? Uh,
2: well, I mean. It, it was either Pinot or Cabernet. <laughs> I mean, Chardonnay was there too, but it was either Pinot or Chardonnay or, or Cabernet. And the two couldn't be more different. Some have been described as masculine and feminine. One is bold and the other is more subtle, more refined and more elegant. And that was the style that I was more interested in, the more elegant, nuanced, subtle style.
1: So tell me about the growth of the Oregon wine industry. Uh, Obviously, you've seen a lot of growth in the Oregon wine. You've seen almost all of the growth of the Oregon wine industry. What are the biggest changes that you've seen um, come to the industry, and what what does the industry look like to you now uh, compared to what it used to be?
2: Well, I I think today it's in a transition. Uh, Originally, again, it was little mom-and-pop businesses. even Erath and all the rest of them were, couldn't be described as much more than a mom and pop operation. <clears throat> and then uh, bigger companies got interested. One of them even got interested in us for a while. Uh, Sam Michelle uh, made purchased uh, a few thousand gallons. Of, uh, of our grapes mm-hmm. and made the wine. Uh, we started started crushing them here and took them over to Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. A guy named Gore, Doug Gore, who was ended ended up to be their president of uh, of wine op- operation, San Michel. <clears throat> and they uh, they were very they got very interested in, I mean, in. They were just experimenting with the grape and it, it was an eye-opener to me to see you know, how big a, a giant company like that, how, how they operated. I mean, it was very different than us here. And it really wasn't, uh, they, had the, they, they had their little secret experiment, essentially, that we were helping them with. The next thing we knew, they bought Erath Vineyards. So I mean, it, it was an eye-opener. In terms of what uh, what big business could do they were a stock market company mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: you talk about being in a transition now what is what is the transition you're seeing well
2: you know it, it is not just recently but but I mean uh, over the last several years I mean we've become part of an international community and an international business community I mean the French have come here and bought. Uh, lots, of, lots of land and uh, other people from all over the, you know, uh, other wine uh, business people have come from all over the world and have started buying things here, which is actually making it more difficult for us local people because they're, they're, uh, their resources are way different than ours. Venture capital people, you know, all that, all that's kind of new. And so, what's the future going to hold? Uh, I, I, th- I still think it's going to be like Burgundy, where you're going to have people uh, like us that are family businesses that hopefully could have gone on for hundreds of years, and that are not giants. Uh, but then there are some in Burgundy that are that are very big companies, uh, but. There'll be, there'll be, there's plenty of room for both. And Pinot Noir is a, a different than Cabernet also in that it's much more, it's more uh, susceptible to changes in soil and uh, in climate. And so five acres c- can really sustain somebody if it's uh, Romani-Conti. You know, I mean, it's it's really possible to have a, a world-class income and everything on five acres, which is not that's not very likely in in, uh, in Cabernet or Bordeaux. So there's room for that, and then there's room for the larger things, like doing like drain has. So I guess it's the internationalization. Of our industry here, and the attractiveness of, uh, of uh, as a business to things like venture capital that even ten, fifteen years ago wasn't wasn't happening.
1: And for Cooper Mountain itself, obviously a lot of growth and very recent growth with the addition of Arbor Brook, which you mentioned. Um, what are you? What are you hoping for its future?
2: Well, I'm I'm hoping for it to be uh, sustainable enough to be able to be an entity. Uh, there's a there's a certain economic size that things have to be if if they're going to sustain themselves. I mean, there there are many hundreds of wine thousand wineries now in Oregon, but really, honestly. Thirty years from now, I doubt if though I doubt if twenty percent of them will be in existence. Although they may be growing grapes, but they'll be somebody different will be doing it, and and so we're hoping for something more sustainable that will that will continue on.
1: So we recently saw at the. 2023 wine symposium you were given an uh, industry award and congratulations on that i'm curious uh, what that means to you after a, a career in wine
2: well i think what it meant to me frankly was the recognition of organics and biodynamics as as a real thing not not some kind of strange offshoot i mean that it's really it's really uh, becoming mainstream and so I felt very good about contributing to that. What most people don't understand actually as well is that the great uh, wineries in France, at least 50 to 60% of them, if not more, are organic and biodynamic. They just don't advertise it. <laughs> On that note, uh, obviously
1: we, we talked to Gilles earlier and we asked him a similar question. Um, how have you seen the growth of organics and biodynamics in in the Oregon industry, um, and what do you see for the kind of the future of that type of farming here?
2: Well, I think it's I think uh, it's it just seems to be increasing every day the amount of interest in organics and biodynamics again, because the ultimate the ultimate is because it improves the, co- the quality of the grapes and the wine and so that, you know whether people believe in any of the theories uh, and there are some pretty out you know out there theories in terms of these uh, particularly biodynamics it's really the proof is in the bottle mm-hmm.
1: All right, last question for you, um, looking back, what is your greatest achievement? What are you proudest of?
2: I think I'm proudest of putting this, this whole system together. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the brand, it's, it's the people. It's mostly the people that we put the Sanchez family and Gilles and a lot of other people into, into some kind of big system. It's, it's a, a wine family. And that's been my, my greatest achievement is creating a wine family.
1: That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything? No, I you'd think like you just, they did fine. Okay.
2: <laughs> <Can't> even...
1: <laughs> can't, can't, no complaints. That's no, all that's good. No,
2: I ho- hope I so. hope I didn't do any gaffes.
1: No, it's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this beautiful space with us and sharing your stories with uh, us. Man,
2: I hope it makes it to the archives. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>